Thanks very much. So I hope you can hear me. I definitely can't see you. That light is pretty, pretty yeah. fierce. <laughs> I'm actually going to go sit down there. Um, we're going to be taking you through uh, a topic that's not new to us, covered several times already at this event and multiple other international electoral events recently, um, certainly beyond our industry, a very old topic. Um, but increasingly, we're starting to see uh, execution and use cases. Um, and the life insurance industry is starting to catch up, not just to non-life, but uh, other industries uh, besides insurance. So we're going to touch on some, some external trends that are uh, driving uh, predictive analytics and analytics uh, throughout the hype cycle um, into actual execution. And I thought I'd just highlight one or two topics that I, I thought are important from education perspective, if I can put it that way, uh, for actuaries, um, things that are perhaps um, new and, and not really covered in actuarial science, uh, certainly not when I did actuarial science. Um, and, I, and I think these are key fundamental ideas, so I thought uh, it might be useful for you to, to hear about them. And then we'll talk about a few case studies, um, mostly in life insurance, given that that's, I think, the area where we have the least use cases uh, known about. And then uh, we'll sort of wrap up. Um, Greg will take you through uh, you know, how we actually go forward in a very sustainable, pragmatic um, path. So I think data can actually make us more human. We're collecting and creating all kinds of data about how we're living our lives, and it's enabling us to tell some amazing stories. Recently, a wise media theorist tweeted, the 19th century culture was defined by the novel, the 20th century culture was defined by the cinema, and the culture of the 21st century will be defined by the interface. And I believe this is going to prove true. Our lives are being driven by data, and the presentation of that data is an opportunity for us to make some amazing interfaces that tell great stories. So I'm going to show you a few of the projects I've been working on over the last couple of years that reflect on our lives and our systems. This is a project called Flight Patterns. What you're looking at is airplane traffic over North America for a 24-hour period. As you see, everything starts to fade to black, and you see people going to sleep. Followed by that, you see on the West Coast, planes moving across the red-eye flights to the East Coast. And you'll see everybody waking up on the East Coast, followed by European flights coming in the upper right-hand corner. Everybody's moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. And then you see San Francisco and Los Angeles start to make their journeys down to Hawaii in the lower left-hand corner. I think it's one thing to say there's 140,000 planes being monitored by the federal government at any one time. That's another thing to see that system as it ebbs and flows. This is a time-lapse image, that exact same data, but I've color-coded it by type. As you can see, the diversity of aircraft that are in the skies above us. I started making these images. I put them into Google Maps and allow you to zoom in and see individual airports and the patterns that are occurring there. So here we can uh, see the, the white represent low altitudes and the blue are higher altitudes. And you can zoom in. This is taking a look at Atlanta. You can see this is a major shipping airport. and There's all kinds of activity there. You can also toggle between altitude for model and manufacturer. You'll see again the diversity. And you can scroll around and see some of, the different, some of the different airports and the different patterns that they have. This is scrolling up the East Coast. You can see some of the chaos that's happening uh, in New York, what the air traffic controllers are having to deal with with the, all those major airports next to each other. So zooming back out real quick, we see, again, the US. You get Florida down in the right-hand corner. Moving across to the west coast, you see San Francisco and Los Angeles, big low traffic zones across Nevada and Arizona. And that's us down there in LA and Long Beach on the bottom. 
I started to take a look as well at different parameters because you can choose what you want to pull out from the data. This is looking at ascending versus descending flights. And you can see over time the ways the airports change. You see the holding patterns that start to develop in the bottom of the screen. And you can see eventually the airport actually flips directions. So this is another project that I worked on with the Sensible Cities Lab at MIT. This is visualizing international communication. So it's how New York communicates with other international cities. And we set this up as a live globe in the Museum of Modern Art in New York for the Designing the Elastic Mind exhibition. And it had a live feed with 24-hour offset, so you could see the changing relationship and kind of some demographic info kind of coming through AT&T's data and re revealing itself. This is another project I worked on with Sensible Cities Lab and CurrentCity.org, and it's visualizing SMS messages being sent in the city of Amsterdam. So you're seeing the daily ebb and flow of people sending SMS messages from different parts of the city until we approach New Year's Eve, where everybody says, Happy New Year! <laughs> So I think the thing that's really changed, as you probably picked up at the start, is that um, there are interfaces that are emerging that are providing lenses into systems of complex behavior um, as a collective at, at the sort of highest level that you could look at uh, human beings interacting and um, being active. And, and I think this is helping us uh, to, to really have a tool we haven't really had before to, to visualize this complexity and, and derive insights we would have not had before. I think this quote is really so, so true for me, um, where we are at as an industry in analytics. And really, it's, it's this coming together of business people, the data scientists, and really helping uh, people through visualization to actually bring the data to life, uh, to distill those insights, um, empower people to make decisions. So uh, I just want to leave you with that, that thought uh, to set the scene of, of an interface and, and really bringing data to life through visualization. I think as an actuary, we, we, you know, we, we always want to know about the external environment that we operate in. And um, at, at Minicree, we've, we've spent some time uh, just coming up with uh, our understanding of, of various primary trends and, and trends that are spinning off from those. And um, those of you that follow Gartner's hype cycle will actually know from year to year, big data um, moves along in the cycle and some years doesn't, doesn't even feature on the cycle. Um, so I think this, this is sort of our 2016 view of key trends on the inner circle big data, digitalization, um, IoT, Internet of Things. Um, and predictive analytics is kind of positioned as a, as a subtrend, a spin-off uh, from big data, and then cloud computing as well. And it's really this combination of big data, digitalization, and IoT uh, that is causing uh, an enormous wave of not just hype, but we're starting to see insurers really investing, actually putting their mouths with, where the money is, and, and actually investing in use cases and partnerships. So what is predictive analytics? Um, we've heard about big data, there's data analytics, there's data science. This is just a simple definition of predictive analytics. Um, Harvard, uh, um, you know, describing it as uh, really a job that's very appealing to a lot of young people starting their career. Throughout the presentation, I'm going to give a couple of results from the Asset Data Forum. Uh, several of you may have seen a survey that they ran out, uh, that they rolled out, and they were kind enough to actually share the results. So um, all of the survey results, I'd just like to give credit to the, the data forum of the society. Um, and on the right is really what uh, 220 members of the profession actually answered uh, when asked um, regarding the term predictive analytics, rank from one to five, uh, five being the most important, uh, which you think best defines predictive analytics. And you see the, uh, the field with the highest score being regression and GLM models, followed by um, and it's based on historical data, a uh, range of techniques, including clustering, etc. predictions for the future. 
So uh, not too far off the definition we had. Um, another question that was asked is, uh, describe your familiarity with uh, the data science universe. And what you see here is a really large uh, amount, 40%, said they've, they've read of data science, they're aware of what it means, but they haven't really used any of its techniques or technologies. And 16% um, said they've heard of it, but they don't know what it means. So kind of half are either doing something with it, um, dabbling in it a bit. So this is probably not generalizable to the whole profession, only 220 responses, but it is a baseline for us. So data science is, is, is really moving beyond just the modeling, which predictive analytics suggests, and, and it's really incorporating a whole range of disciplines, including uh, subject, uh, subject matter experts, you know, actual business colleagues in the domain expertise. So data analytics itself is, is just extending to incorporate the actual technology, uh, the data, and the people, or the actual skills. It's, it's really that ecosystem of um, aspects that, that makes it possible. So if we look at the landscape of infrastructure, software, applications, um, open source, a whole range of different uh, forms of technology, there's an incredibly varied universe that exists around our industry. And making sense of it is, is really challenging. Um, when the survey asked uh, the profession, you know, what software are you making use of to do analytics? This is what we found. So Excel being the most widely cited, followed by R, uh, statistical programming um, software, which is free and open, open source, followed by SAS. And then I was really curious if anyone in the room does know how analytics can be done with profits and profit testing tools. I'd, I'd like to talk to you afterwards, <laughs> please. But profit is, is there. Um, so, so this is kind of an initial baseline that we have as an industry. Not surprising, I think a lot of actuaries, life and non-life around the world, are using R. Um, it's free, um, even security-wise. Um, many big corporates have, uh, have implemented it. So uh, just a question to think about for a moment. In your entire career, what is the biggest amount of data that, that you've ever had to work with? Where would it be in this scale, from bytes, kilobytes, megabytes, gigs, to terabytes, and so on? Um, would anyone, show of hands, have analyzed a terabyte of data? Some kind of analysis. One, two, three, four. So I, I think most actuarial type analyses have focused on gigabytes um, in, in, in general. And I think big, big data uh, is, is, is not really only defined by, by volume, it's defined by its um, variety, it's uh, the speed at which it develops a whole range of other attributes, but certainly the volume is one of the characteristics. And um, these are just uh, some things to really think about. You know, the, the, the SAS and the big data analytics platforms that big organizations are investing in, they have huge amounts of uh, memory that are able to process the data within the memory. And, and, and this is just an example of sort of four terabytes of, of memory that would be available, um, which is really phenomenal. Um, you know, sort of the amount of, the amount of words ever spoken by humans reaching what they call an exabyte um, and looking at just the trends going forward, it's estimated that, um, that the current digital data will grow from 4.4 zettabytes to around 44 zettabytes. Um, that's around 44 trillion gigabytes. So it's, I think what we're witnessing is really exponential growth in the amount of data, and granted, not, not all of that, and probably a majority of it uh, might not be usable in, in life insurance. And these are just some of the sources to, to ponder on for a moment. Um, every minute of every day, uh, this is the kind of amount of activity that we're seeing, you know, sort of over 4 million uh, Facebook likes per minute, 
over 110,000 calls on Skype, 700 people take an Uber every minute, you know it goes on. And then of course the IoT within non-life is, is already starting to take shape with, with sensors and telematics. Uh, the, you know, the sensors are giving rise to the, the driver's behavior being converted into data that, that can be analyzed with a predictive model. Uh, then we've heard of smart homes, the same thing. Um, on the property side in non-life as a preventative mechanism, uh, sensors are, are preventing damage and, you know, to, to properties, enabling insurers to intervene early. So all of these sensors are starting to create new forms of data. The interesting thing is that the methods, analytics modeling methods are not new. Um, in fact, machine learning has been around since the 90s and fairly advanced regression models since the 80s. What really has changed is um, the technology that has uh, emerged, particularly over the last five years, that allows us to implement these, um, these methods on fairly large data sets. Here's just one example um, within our, our organization of just what you can do with two really powerful servers dedicated to analysis uh, of, of big data sets uh, with R. Um, what you're seeing over here uh, is, is the CPUs of the server, where every, every black cell represents a, a CPU. So this, this server has 24 CPUs, and then on, on the left, it's kind of enjoying its peaceful states, and on the right, we execute a whole range of code and models are run, and um, this, this PC gets really, really busy. Um, but what you notice is all the CPUs are active at the same time. So multi-core processing, the ability to run uh, processes in parallel is also saving us a lot of time today, um, dividing and conquering basically. So that's, that's the kind of CPU side. On the memory side, this is really crucial because a lot of these software packages um, do the analysis in memory. Um, even to load your data into some of these packages requires a lot of, uh, a lot of RAM. Uh, so this particular server had over 260 gigs of RAM, and that's just one of them. So I think most of us, our notebooks that we use every day at the office, probably won't have more than 16 gigs of RAM, give or take. So you know, if you compare that to 260 gigs, this is really significantly different power we're talking about. So let's just bring this uh, back to a, a practical level, and credit has to go to Greg uh, for, for his uh, creativity here. Um, but analytics is going to impact the entire value chain. Um, many insurance uh, executives around the world, when surveyed, are, are confirming this in, in their perception. Um, this, this is going to span the whole value chain. Um, and even I think many creators, it's, it's been fascinating to see how actuaries are having almost one conversation, whether they are in health, life, or non-life. Uh, the methods are, can be generalized. People, different actuaries in different fields can learn from each other. Um, it is not a case of different um, pricing or reserving methods being quite foreign depending on what your area is. So drilling down just one level deeper, some specific questions that a life assurer could potentially look at answering with these analytics methods. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to examples of the methods in a few slides. So as I mentioned, across the value chain from pricing product development right to underwriting, um, I think a really key theme in, in the life space is on predictive underwriting. Uh, and it's all aimed at improving the customer experience, reducing the cost of underwriting. So really obvious reasons to be doing this. Uh, trying to make the, the industry a lot more client or customer centric, I think that, that's really where the impetus is coming from. So these methods can really help life insurers stream, streamline their application processes, make sense of third party data, execute cross selling campaigns, um, you know, at point of sale, a whole range of uh, areas can be benefited. 
So Bain & Company did a survey of 70 insurers um, globally in 2015. The blue bars are those in life, the, the green in, in uh, property and casualty. And uh, the bottom bars are kind of telling you about how they see the usage of predictive analytics uh, in each of these functions, sales, marketing, product design and pricing, fraud, underwriting claims. And the top bars are how they perceive usage in the next three to five years. So bottom bars current and the top bars in future. And for life business, you see that the biggest perceived increase in usage is in underwriting, which I think several of us observe already. So I think this is really, and for no, no, no unknown reason, that is where you're really going to impact the customer experience um, and the efficiency of the business around cost of underwriting. Towers and Watson did another survey, again highlighting uh, what insurers are trying to do around improving risk selection, targeting profitable customers. Uh, there was a survey in Europe on analytics in 2016. Um, you know, 70% agreeing that analytics will be the largest disruption uh, in the industry in the next year. 85% um, saying they're confident that within two years their organization will gain significant uh, value from their analytics investment. So what did, uh, what did local ASA members say? Um, when asked, how often do you, do you foresee data analytics being a key driver of strategy in your company? in the next three years. Um, some members answered 30% all of the time, 36% um, mostly. So again, like, you know, some overlap with what we're seeing out of European North American surveys. So as an actuary, if this is something that interests you or your employer, where, where do you actually start? And I say start because this certainly was not covered when, when I did actuarial science. So on, on the one hand, there's been a lot of activity outside of our industry really good uh, references like this, an introduction to uh, statistical learning with applications in R, a really practical book. Um, within our industry, there have been some industry body papers written like this one around algorithmic pricing, uh, specific application in non-life, but they're starting to introduce uh, more of the modern analytics methods to old problems for actuaries, uh, which make our lives easier to, uh, when doing them. When the members were asked uh, where they are kind of how they're going about it at the moment. This, is, this was their answer. The most prominent one being conferences, seminars, or other events. So hopefully uh, that's why, why you're attending this session. Uh, and, and the next one is sort of online reference material, learning from non-actuaries, and then online courses. I personally myself have benefited from online courses. Okay, so just to highlight a few key concepts uh, from predictive analytics, the, the modern methods. I think the first one that stands out is the optimization problem, the way models are optimized, is a bit different. Um, there's a lot of focus on the, the model's ability to predict uh, data that hasn't influenced the model building process. So data that is unseen by the model. Uh, some have referred to it as testing data, where you train the model on some of the data and, t and test it on the remainder. So that's, that's a, a new idea. It sounds simple and obvious. Um, there's some nuances around it. Uh, the other two, I think, are known to actuaries. Um, you know, your, one of your objectives, of course, is which variables are driving the outcomes of interest? How do the variables interact with each other in driving that, those outcomes? And can you interpret the effect of the variables on the outcome of interest? You know, what is the relationship between, say, um, you know, age or, or smoker status and uh, mortality incidents? Can you actually quantify that, uh, that effect controlling for other variables? And then the, the last one, perhaps not so, th so thought about uh, to date, with analytics being new to life insurers is how will you implement your model to make it relevant for your organization? 
Um, is it simply the insights of the model? Does your company need to put it in production? Does it need to be combined with an automated underwriting solution? Um, you know, what is, what is the purpose? So really important that. I think at the core of uh, modern analytics methods is a shift in paradigm from what is called a data modeling culture to an, an algorithmic modeling culture where basically models are effectively learning from the data and they are not assuming that complexity can be reduced to a known process or a known mathematical formula. When, asked, uh, when the members were asked um, for the term machine learning to rank which of these concepts they felt most defined it, um, a lot of overlap here, but I think the important one is data-driven rather than model-driven. So that stood out for a lot of members. So the actual types of, um, I've just put this up there to read um, offline for, for your interest, but modern analytics methods are divided into two families, supervised and unsupervised learning. And the only main difference really is the supervised have a target variable, uh, where you're trying to relate, you know, sort of predictive variables to a, a target variable. Unsupervised methods don't per se have a target variable, but are more interested in the relationships between the variables in your data. And um, unsupervised is often a useful precursor to the supervised side, in that it helps you understand uh, the relationships in the data which allow you, which guide your thinking as to uh, the design of your model in terms of variable selection. So these are just some examples of modern analytics uh, techniques. So linear, linear models and GLMs would be known to actuaries. Um, I think it gets a bit less well-known when we look at mixed effects models and what we call regularization, where several of the machine learning methods are automating the selection of variables. Um, I, I think for pricing, we, we typically don't see, on the life side anyway, more than 15 variables, potential rating factors. But when you start looking at underwriting applications, uh, you might encounter over 50 variables. And in the big data context, thousands of variables. And this is really where actual conventional methods are becoming difficult to be effective. So uh, these methods of linear model selection, regularization, are effectively, they, they behave like GLMs in some case, but they're allowing us to automate the variable selection process, which, which is quite useful. Um, and then there are tree-based methods, a whole range of others. And I think you have this trade-off between interpretability and flexibility. I think there are a few of us that would be interested in a model that's not interpretable. So Google can predict if a model is, if an email is going to be spam. Do we want to know why it's spam? Probably not. We just don't want to get the email. Um, but I think if it comes to, will you sign off a pricing basis? Will you sign off a valuation basis? Um, I think few of us are going to be interested in models that are not interpretable. And by that I mean the actual effect of every variable on the outcome of interest must be known, it must be quantifiable, and you must be in a position, therefore, to assess reasonability. Um, you know, of, of the model insights. So I think in insurance, interpretability is probably more important than predictive power. You know, it's not going to help us that the model has optimized predictive power, but is not interpretable, and we cannot apply our minds to it being reasonable. So when, um, when the members were asked in the survey, um, please indicate whether you or your team use any uh, of the data science techniques of these techniques for actuarial purposes. Um, so visualization techniques were the most highly rated, followed by regression, uh, GLMs, decision trees, random forests, and gradient boosting. So those are, those are more modern forms of um, regression uh, models that, that have much higher predictive power in some cases than GLMs. 
The other important concept is how you use your data to build the model. I've touched on this already a bit, but just to illustrate. So if, if every row of this table was, say, an entire experience data set, um, and you wanted to build a pricing model from this data, um, the modern statistical learning theory says that you should develop your model with a portion of the data, say the white, which we would call the training data, and then test its predictive power uh, using the remaining red or the testing data. And you could do that several times. That is called resampling, and there are various methods like cross-validation. Um, but but in, in effect, what this is trying to get at is more of an honest predictive power. And with every one of these iterations, you would get uh, a measurement of predictive power, and, and there are many ways to define it. Depends on the problem, what you're modeling. Um, and based on that, you could get some sort of mean of the predictive power of, of a specific model, uh, or a model with particular variables uh, uh, that you've included. So that gives rise to two types of prediction error. The one is calculated in the training data, as I mentioned, the whites a moment ago. And the interesting thing about that error is, as you in increase the complexity of your model, which practically could be adding further rating factors into your model or interactions, um, the training error is always going to reduce. And in, in an extreme case, you have a model that passes through every data point, uh, which is just simply overfitting and um, fitting random variation, and will probably not predict very well on other data sets the model hasn't seen, which is really what we want. So it gives rise to the second type of prediction error, which is calculated in the testing data, so the red. And the interesting thing is, at some level of model complexity, this begins to, to increase. And its optimization problem is really centered around minimizing the prediction error when using the testing data. There's also the concept of bias and variance. So in this case, if you imagine sort of a throw, throwing darts um, and related to a pricing basis, you know, you'd want to sort of be accurate all, all of the time. But in some cases, you could have very little variation between the estimates of the model, um, but they're off the target all the time versus um, a lot of variation within the estimates, but close to the target. So um, bias and variance are, are, are concepts that explain that, and, and there's a trade-off. And when optimizing this problem, it's believed that the, op the optimal trade-off is achieved. The interesting thing is um, there's a level of error below which you can never get the testing error to drop, and that's the irreducible error. And um, even when you actually simulate data from a known mathematical process, uh, such as this black polynomial, and then you actually fit various lower degree polynomials to that data, um, and you look on the right here at the training error, the gray, and the testing error in the red, you find that the most complex model, which is this green, does not have the lowest testing error. It's actually much a lower order polynomial, which is the blue, which has the lowest testing error. Uh, it just never drops below the irreducible error. There's irreducible error because there is random variation in this process. And what the models are often trying to fit is the expected value of the response given a particular value of the predictive variables. So that's a mean, and it is, there is variation around that mean. So that is where reducible error comes from. Okay, so onto some use cases. There are many different themes. I already spoken about at other sessions in this conference, so I won't go th through them. Um, I'm going to focus on a little bit more detail on a few case studies. The one is uh, really where life insurers are trying to streamline their underwriting process uh, to improve the customer experience lower the cost of underwriting, 
And, and some of the use cases already are looking at application data from the underwriting stage and applying predictive models to those to understand what drives the underwriting decision, what is most predictive of the underwriting decision. Um, and, and one of the byproducts of that is eliminating questions which add no value. And we actually can be useful in working with data scientists in, is helping them understand the unintended consequences of, for example, removing a question of your app form that might not appear to have predictive value, but when removed could expose the insurer to anti-selection, other, other downstream effects which the data scientists might not actually understand. So we've been involved um, with some initiatives, this is just hypothetical, uh, where effectively one of the outputs is a sense of variable importance. So of the fields on your application form or of the questions, um, you can look at it in different layers, you might find that only 20 of 60 fields on your, of your app form are necessary to predict the underwriting decision sufficiently well. Looking at it from a question perspective instead of a field, um, you would get a sense of the importance of every question on your app form. And following on from that, um, you could actually use tree-based methods to, to look at the split in different groups of lives between standard and non-standard uh, decisions. So you see here on the left-hand side of the tree, green being standard, this particular group is almost entirely a standard risk group. And that knowledge of which rating factors, which combination of them lead to this kind of standard group is quite useful uh, in that uh, a lot of requirements could potentially be waived for that group uh, and the throughput rates in, in terms of underwriting could be improved and the customer experience for that group improved. So correlations in data sets where you have you know, over 50 variables becomes really tricky to make sense of. And um, some of the newer methods are useful for that. Over here we, we see BMI and occupation uh, code. And over here are just the correlations. So the, the second um, use case, uh, sorry, the last point I would add is there are two sides to that coin. You could either reduce your requirements or answer your questions in, in, in different ways that are less inconvenient to the, the client or, or less costly. So I think it's important to realize that this is not just about reducing questions. It's about changing the customer experience and there are different approaches. Some companies are interested in, in answering the questions with third-party data. Um, so that is a different, different side to it. So cross-selling is, is um, not, not new, again, to our industry, but uh, the types of campaigns emerging are using predictive analytics. Um, so banking is a great one where life insurers are, we're seeing many partnerships across the world uh, between life insurers and huge banking groups, multinationals. And the life insurers are trying to sell protection business into, through, through the bank. And um, in some cases, you will want to actually use the banking data to inform who, you, who to make a life insurance offer to. So that's a great example of where predictive analytics uh, can be useful. Um, we've been involved in some machine learning approaches to, to that. And it's, you can imagine with banking data, the number of variables that you could potentially create from the data is really large. So how, you, how do you make sense of that? These, these methods are well suited. And then of course, as I mentioned, how do you put the, the model into production? Um, you have those insights as to who to sell to. The second question is, how do you make those offers? Uh, so we're starting to see this, um, this merger of analytics and solutions like automated underwriting solutions, which are really going to generate a lot of value for, for insurers if they can be combined successfully. So onto a pricing use case. Um, so I, I kind of see experienced data as Michelangelo saw a block of marble, but there is some inherent truth. There's some inherent complexity 
and uh, actually is trying to really excavate that. They're trying to get to valid conclusions and trying not to mislead uh, people that their decisions impact. So I think it's the sort of question of are we predicting the data or are we predicting the signal in our experience, the actual variation we want to explain. So traditionally, I've seen a lot of pricing exercises where um, the actual pricing model is built the entire experience data set and then tested on the same entire experience data set. And um, we could look at actual versus expected claim ratios in aggregate for the data set. We could look at the ratio at granular levels. And you will get to some point of the data where credibility will start to come up in the conversation uh, as to whether to take an A versus E over 100% seriously or not. And uh, some might even go further to talk about um, present values of future claims uh, in respect of cells with A versus E over 100%. How material is the absolute impact? So you, you have a decision to make, or question rather, at what point are you overfitting the data? And, and you are just fitting random variation. And in fact, adding more variables is not generating true predictive power any further. So I think this question of using A versus E ratios in respect of the whole data set is something we should be cautious about. And applying an analytics uh, approach uh, is really well suited to quantifying predictive power in a more honest uh, way uh, and giving us an algorithmic approach to explaining to our stakeholders how we actually got to a particular combination of variables. Why is this the pricing model we recommend? So overfitting creates a, you know, the risk of random variation being um, really influencing our models. So it leads to a false sense of prediction power, predict predictive power. So the solution from a statistical learning field is to build the model with training data and test it on independent data. And um, there are many different predictive power metrics that you, you can develop depending on the problem. And actuaries can play a really good role here in making sure that uh, the metrics that are being used are meaningful. They're actually telling us what we want to know. Okay, so he has, just following on from that, making it a bit more practical, this could be a sort of hypothetical uh, out outcome of the model, right? So you're trying to model mortality incidence, and um, the result is a couple of numbers. You would sort of have a base level of mortality rate, in this case, uh, one death per mole, and you would have a series of factors that would multiply that up or down. This, this is really simple. And there are three things that stand out from this as an output of the model. Firstly, these are standardized effects. They are controlling for the effect of other rating factors. Okay? So we immediately get a standardized result. This is not a crude analysis. Secondly, through an, through an algorithmic approach, it is possible to optimize predictive power. Right? Identify which combination of variables and their interactions uh, maximizes predictive power. The last thing is it's really easy to maintain. Once you've written the code, uh, it's really easy to, to run it again on, on new data. So, you know, this, as a, as a uh, precursor to a pricing basis, um, the rates per model point is achieved by simply multiplying these few numbers together um, for a given model point. So, you know, contrast that against the rate table of 10,000 numbers. When you have to make sense of a rate table of 10,000 numbers, uh, where do you begin? You will apply profiles, you will look at uh, standardized relativities, you will start to compare them to other rates from uh, locally, other lines of business, other countries. Um, you know, this immediately shows you if there is an anomaly for a particular adjustments. For example, you know, smokers we see are uh, you know, two times the mortality of non-smokers. For females, half the mortality of males. Um, the select period duration, and, and of course many other factors would be in this table in real life. 
um, you know, this is not a red table of 10,000 numbers. So the, the results are immediately interpretable and standardized. So the actual mortality incidence is really just then the product of a few numbers, which is uh, quite easy to work with. So just to visualize, if you, if you had a, um, a series of what we call candidate models that vary according to which rating factors are in, in the model, um, the simplest model would be the null model, which is a model with no variables. It is total claims divided by total exposure. It is a pricing basis of one number. Um, most of us would, would guess that's going to be a terrible pricing basis. Maybe not overall, but certainly at a granular level of your experience. Um, and then on the other hand, you would have all the rating factors in and all the interactions. That would be the most complex model. And somewhere in between is probably the answer you're looking for. So what I've done here is um, just visualized um, a typical graph where you've ranked all your candidate models by their predictive power shown by the gray uh, on this axis. Uh, don't worry about the quantum of the number. And A versus E on the right. Both measures calculated with the testing data. And uh, this red line is, say, say you had a prior view. Say you had an existing basis or set of rates. Um, I calculated the actual predictive power based on that set of rates. And the idea is that you're trying to outperform those rates. In this case, that means a lower level uh, of this particular measure that would be a higher predictive power. Um, so in a mortality case where you have count data, uh, this metric that I used would measure goodness of fit at the granular level of the data. And uh, you're, trying to, you're trying to minimize that error. So you see all of the models to the left here um, have higher predictive power than the existing set of rates. When you look at the A versus E, the interesting thing is, overall, at an aggregate level of the testing data, it was fairly insensitive to different variable combinations. Um, of course, when applied at more granular levels, you would see much bigger differences. But as a meaningful metric of predictive power, I think we should be cautious in, in using it. Um, this measure over here, which in practice I, I had a deviance, uh, you're welcome to look it up, uh, goodness of fit at a granular level, is far more sensitive to the variable combinations. So we really are trying to find models that, that outperform existing rates. And this is an algorithmic way of showing your stakeholders how you got to the choice of variables, which is, which is quite useful. I think the message should also clearly be that no one is advocating for GLMs to be inadequate. It may very well be that a simple GLM does the job. The important thing is to know how much additional performance you stand to gain by more advanced methods like machine learning, uh, which automate variable selection for us. So um, in, some, in some instances, uh, modern methods are not outperforming GLMs. Uh, in, in others, they are, particularly in the large variable contexts uh, that I mentioned. So what, these are some of the reasons, in summary, to advance uh, predictive um, analytics uh, in actuarial science. So it really helps us identify which variables are driving our outcomes and their interactions. It helps with automating variable selection. Consider the big data context of a thousand variables. Um, it quantifies and optimizes predictive power. It helps you know when you're overfitting your data. Um, it reduces operational risk. And why, why do I say that? Um, you can give the same set of code to 10 people and it will yield the same result. It also serves as an order trail in that it's a set of code. And it's easy to maintain these models um, once you've written the code. So when asked, uh, when asking the profession, what is the greatest barrier to doing more advanced analytics? Um, the key answer 
was shortage of staff with appropriate skill sets. We've seen that already in, in other uh, conversations. And when looking at Google Trends, um, since 2004 up to 2016, this is kind of the trend for the word actuary. Uh, this green is analytics, uh, red being big data, of course, machine learning over here in yellow. Um, interesting thing is when you filter on insurance, it looks a bit different. So I think actuaries are still highly relevant in insurance. This is sort of a worldwide view of the trend. But something to think about that we don't, we don't miss this boat and have data scientists um, you know, telling the actuaries how to do modeling. I should also say that actuaries, before I go into this, don't need to know all the technical details. Um, I think the reasonability and interpretation is far more important. Um, and often a multidisciplinary team in your organization is the better answer rather than the data scientist doing actuarial science and they're actually doing data science, uh, which are really long learning curves, so rather try and find a way to work together. So some wider applications. Um, many have seen our study from Munich Re about um, the HIV data set that we analyzed. That was a predictive analytics uh, approach to uh, longitudinal disease uh, data uh, to derive extra, extra mortality ratings. Geospatial analytics is another one where location-based data, um, different types of data that, are, uh, that vary by location are being overlaid against each other to inform decisions. In this case, a, a non-life application uh, where there is the risk of um, cable theft and where you actually see the actual cables overlaid by the insurer's ex existing exposure to the risk. Uh, and there was a lot more detail I couldn't show there. But uh, this is a really useful way to look at uh, location-based data. And then uh, facial analytics is another one coming into life insurance where uh, some companies are trying to estimate uh, key underwriting information um, with, with much less invasive means. So estimating a BMI from a photo um, and a whole range of other longevity and health-based measures uh, from the photo. These are machine learning methods uh, that need a lot of data to actually learn from. So I think it's still really early days. I don't think this is a proven concept yet. It's very interesting, and I think we should really explore it. Uh, but, but I think as actuaries, make sure that you understand what is sitting behind them um, and, 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 and that the validation of these techniques is, is actually sensible. So unstructured text mining is another uh, very prominent field. This is just something I created from um, uh, tweets on, on Twitter. Um, and, and again, coming back to the initial video, an interface into a complex reality that you would not have been able to make sense with otherwise. Um, then digital analytics is uh, not, again, not a, a new um, technique, uh, but for companies that are looking at their digital strategy, if you think of how sophisticated our banks are and you've gone to the websites of our insurers, uh, it looks vastly different, you know, the user friendliness, uh, the apps. Um, so companies are starting to look at the digital, digital strategy and realizing that the journey of the customer through the website is a source of data. Every click, every uh, falling off the deal process, um, buying the product, uh, where they fell off, why was their bounce, what, what did they do on the site, that is data. So there's a whole sort of architecture around that that collects it. Um, this is a survey um, looking at all the uses, uses, you know, uses of it, um, whether it's uh, analyzing website usage, uh, paid traffic, um, you know, where are the touch points on the website? How can you optimize your site to drive sales, better service to your client? So I'm not sure how many actually have thought of this as a source of data. Um, you know, how are customers experiencing your website? There are many tools to do that. 
and when asking the members, uh, it seems several are actually using Google Analytics already. So that, that's interesting. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to Greg um, to give us some uh, sobering comments um, as to how we could go forward in a sustainable way with these techniques. Hi. Um, well done. Uh, Lee, you, whenever we spoke about the, the, this presentation and looking at it, you always had so much information, and I was always like, I, I don't know how you're going to communicate it uh, to the audience in, in the limited time. Well, I think I discovered one of the ways is I've got some friends and they've definitely found that they've never been able to shut me up. Where I think Lee found a way by only giving me, I think, seven minutes. Um, if you guys could just quickly stand up because I think you've had 90 minutes to stand up quickly. And you can now sit down again, but I think at least I know who's awake and who's asleep. Um, who answered the survey from the actual profession earlier? There were 220 people who answered it. Okay. So I, I, won't, I won't insult you too much. I was very surprised that people thought that Excel was a tool to work with big data. I would not have regarded that as an option. The reason being is that if you're working, a, who has used terabytes of data in Excel? Anyway, that's another question. Um, so I, I'm going to be really quick with my presentation. So, so I thought the best way to start was you need to start with a cost-benefit analysis. Yes, big data, predictive analytics can help. It can always help. It can always help in many different areas of our processes. But there's always a cost and a trade-off. Are you wasting your time? Is it going to be worth it? So I think it's not just costs and benefits. It's also risks versus rewards. And you can see it the other way around. There are pros and cons of doing it. For me at the moment, I think in some cases, it might be what I was called bleeding edge. In other words, yes, you're going to get advantages out of doing some of this work, but it's going to cost a lot. And it might not be worth it. So the best strategy might be to be a fast follower. Not all investments are going to pay off, but that's how it is in, in, in new areas. It's always like that. This is not in a special area there. And uh, you need to be careful of things like so, you know, so some background environmental change that can happen, like regulatory change or consumer backlash against the use of data. We'll see some examples of that later. But for me, I think it's also very important to realize that the upside and the winners are going to be the people who get it right first. I think Airbnb and many organizations like that have shown that. The person who wins is the person that gets the data at the beginning, who becomes the go-to place, and the network effect takes over, and they become able to charge uh, Uber, Uber prices. Uh, I think they have 25% margin uh, for, 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 for taxi fares. So, so this is definitely a way to get a sustainable competitive advantage, but it is not necessarily that bankable. Okay? Yeah, on, on, on the pro side, I think it's also important to remember that you can actually get things like improved customer experience and you can have better risk classification as a side effect of some of these interventions that you're doing, say, particularly if they're dealing with pricing. And, of course, a lot of these tools are free. There's, there are very few areas in the world where you can actually go and use the best software, and the best software is free. So I thought I'd start with a little case study, and I know I have to be quick, but I think the key point here is that if you look at that date that was written the day before the election in The Economist magazine, normally quite highly regarded, there's a, two U.S. universities predicted there was a 99 or 98% chance of Hillary Clinton winning. Uh, some guy who predicted uh, all 49 states uh, winning the Obama election in the, in the last round, he, he guessed Hillary Clinton was going to win 71% of the time. In other words, basically every model before the last Trump election was wrong. So be careful, okay? The best minds in the world throwing the biggest computers at solving these problems all got it wrong, all of them. Okay. 
And no, I'm not just shouting at them because I once did a model presented at the actual convention which is who's going to win the Premier League. And it just so happened that in the first nine matches of, this, of, of, of that season, Chelsea had done really well. Then they had a couple of injuries, <laughs> a couple of other things happened, and uh, basically I think, I think my 10,000 model run simulation had only seven cases where Chelsea didn't win the league. Well, what do you think happened that, that season? They didn't win the league. So the reality is, is that even if the past is pointing in one direction, the future might be different. In this case, it was guys got injured. You know, I, think, I think coaches changed, other players arrived in the, in the transfer window in, in January, and basically the second half of the season looked quite different to the first half. But I'm, I mean, I'm not all doom and gloom here, because I, mean, I think there's been some amazing things. I mean, like, I mean, Lee spoke about companies like Google and what they're doing. Every, what you don't know is that every single time you ever do a search que- request, the results that Google gives you is an experiment. They are actually seeing what you click on. They are going to use that data to make their model better in the future. That's how the model works. Actually, people, you know, people running websites file it for them, and people who are using it help it to get better all the time. So they had actually a very clever idea. They said they'll work out where flu trends are happening in the world by looking at who's searching for flu. And this model worked perfectly for like three years in a row. In the fourth year, it, 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 was, it was an absolute disaster. And this comes down to, I think, what Lee's talking about. Make sure that you can able to explain why the model works. Because if you can't explain why the model works, it may not work the next time around. And in the case of the Google flu trends, they weren't betting the house on it. But in you know, 2008, some people were betting the house. So let's talk about, uh, uh, you know, I spoke a bit about how, how regulatory change can, you know, can, can cause trouble. Well, in, in Europe, I think it's fair to say that uh, at the moment, you cannot use gender as a rating factor. Okay? The, it, it, it basically, the, 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 this change arrived, and they basically said you are breaking the European Constitution by charging men and women different, different rates. At the same time, is that people are using postcode rating. Now, a postcode rating, if you look at this here, there's a heavy degree of correlation between race. So different parts of London different people are staying based on, you know, and it's, it's obvious, I mean, I think uh, you know, there are a lot of South Africans in Wandsworth, Wimbledon, okay? uh, if you ever go there, that, that's where you'll find your friends. Um, but the reality is, is that in South Africa, if people are using postcode, thanks to things like the Group Areas Act in the past, there's unfortunately a high level of correlation with race. Now, we all know that race is actually a pretty good predictive power, has pretty good predictive power for many of our products and industries. But the problem is we're not allowed to use it because it's against the Constitution. So the situation is you might wind up uh, being unable to use the tools if you do them. I know I'm running out of time. So here comes a very interesting one. So the graph on the left, that's the, the, the rise of Facebook users. That's 1.6 million people being active daily users or something ridiculous like that. A company in the UK decided to launch a product based on that. So they said, we're going to credit score you, if, oh no, we're going to risk classify you based on what you've liked and not liked on, 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 on Facebook. So they launched. And it was brilliant, and everyone was happy, and all these people were going to go and use it. And the very same day, Facebook said, no, you may not use our data to do that. So just because you think you've got a brilliant idea, be careful of the gatekeeper, because it may not even be the regulator. It may, not, it may be the provider of the data feed. who might say, no, actually, if you introduce the service, you're going to cause people to do different use of their social media, and they don't want that change. So they stopped it. Who knows who that is? Okay, it's Chandra from Friends. Actually, the most interesting thing I found out in the whole presentation, apart from the stuff that Lee told me, is this guy's backstory. You should read about it. But he's actually a transponster, according to Monica, when she was asked what is his job. 
actually he was a data scientist back in the, the 80s and 90s. The reality is, is that if you guys are wanting to find out how to, how, how to make, make hay out of this graph, which says that there's a huge shortage of staff with appropriate skills, I think the answer is, yes, there is. You can skill yourself, become a data scientist. Uh, the person who gave me a, a bursary at Sunlam uh, 25 years ago told me, uh, told me today that they tried to hire a, a, a part-qualified data analyst, uh, a part-qualified actuary who's a data analyst, and they were earning more than me. Uh, so they didn't end up hiring them. Um, if you are wanting to, to, to improve your skill set and become what I would call a data scientist and moving away from being, being an actuary, then I think it's very important that you actually get an overlap of these skills. So I'd, I, I'd implore you to focus on that. In terms of the hype cycle, uh, Lee spoke about it earlier. Yes, people are basically saying, it's like, you know, where is big data? Well, at the moment, big data is actually listed as being at the, at, at the top of the peak there. I don't think that's right. I think that is right possibly for all industries. But in the case of insurance and financial services, we are probably the, the sector that is most likely to benefit from this. So in that situation, I would argue that we are probably even further along the curve and uh, you will definitely be some, some, some great, uh, great use cases going forward, as Lee has showed already. So I think the reason that this is all really important is that we're actually having a bit of a perfect storm here. You've got, you know, more data is being created. Um, you know, we've now got the tools to be able to analyze it. A lot of money is being thrown at the problem. In the past, there were few people who were able to use the, you know, who were competent with these tools, things like R. I think between this year and next year, I imagine that a meaningful portion of this room will try out R. And I will be very surprised if that doesn't happen. And if it doesn't happen, I think it's quite interesting because it might be, I'm not saying it'll say the demise of the actuarial profession, but you're going, the actuarial profession will be overtaken by other professions who will start eating into the areas where we are regarding as domain, our, our domain. So I think what, what predictive analytics and big data allows us to do is it, is it allows us to solve some of the same problems in new and different ways. For me, the great example that Lee spoke about is how, how, how we can use this data to improve the customer onboarding process. We all know that the customer onboarding process is a major barrier to us increasing our sales. It's a problem that everyone has, life, non-life, everywhere. Um, this, this area will be able to help. There are four quotes here. I guess you can read them later. I'm only going to read the last one uh, from Neil Mason. After all that is said and done, more needs to be done than said. And I guess these are some key takeaways here. I almost wanted to make a joke and say, uh, what's the most important letter uh, in uh, you know, you know, you know, big data and credit scoring? And the joke was going to be, it's not R, it's you. But um, the, uh, the, 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 the key thing here is it's definitely not Excel. Okay? You know, the, 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 the fastest way to lose credibility in a big data discussion is to say that you use Excel. Okay? Um, <laughs> Well, some people find it funny, but I think it's um, the, the jokes actually on the actual profession that 90% of people thought that Excel was their tool of choice. Um, we have one more slide, but I think we're way out of time. And I'll just leave that up there, and you can ask us questions or go have tea, I think. I'm not sure. Yeah, so we have one sort of very important question. This is a very important question. Um, the they all want tea. Yeah.
And if I could just have a, a closing comment. So there's actually a lot of information in Lee's slides that he actually flew through. I strongly recommend if you want to, if you want to, to upskill yourself in these areas, please download the presentation. Our emails are on the back and please contact us because I think, I think we both are very passionate about the actual profession using these skills and areas more and, and realizing the benefits. Thank you. Thank you.